Hi, I'm Lynn Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Todd Satterston. Based in Portland, Todd is president of the Astronaut Projects Publishing Studio. Throughout his very diverse career, he's worked as bookseller, foreign literary scout, literary agent, editor, and author. Um, along with his colleague Jack Covert, is that how it's pronounced? It's covert. It's actually you know kind of like a spy. It's well, covert. Actually, so I, I had my prepared little joke, which is you know Jack Covert is the greatest <laughs> sounding spy name ever. Um, so along with his colleague um, uh, Todd is co-author of the popular book uh, The One Hundred Best Business Books of All Time: What They Say, Why They Matter, and How They Can Help You. Uh, and he's he's published other other works, but he's um, also recently published a new version. Um, of his book, Every Book is a Startup, on LeanPub, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later. Um, you can follow Todd on Twitter, at Todd Satterston, and you can learn more about him and his work and read his blog post from his website at toddsatterston.com. Um, I should note that conventionally in interviews with um, LeanPub authors for the Front Matter podcast, we talk about the author's area of specialty, uh, but we don't talk about the publishing industry like I do with guests on the Back Matter podcast. Uh, but given that in this case, Todd's area of expertise is the publishing industry, um, I guess you might say this is going to be the greatest crossover podcast ever. Uh, <laughs> so I'll be publishing on both, publishing it on both uh, front matter and back matter. Um, in this interview, we're going to talk about Todd's background career, uh, his books, and uh, as well as his thoughts on the publishing industry generally. So thank you, Todd, for being on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, so I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you ended up on the path to being in the publishing world. Sure. Um, I grew up in the Midwest, um, the United States. Uh, I'm from Wisconsin originally. Spent um, 35 plus years there in various um, times. Uh Went to school, actually became a mechanical engineer um, by training. And when I graduated, I went to work for General Electric. And as a manufacturing guy, um, what's great about GE is they make lots of very, very interesting things. So I made um, CT scanners. I made um, artificial diamond, um, all in the the sort of, oh, um, motor controls for paper mills. So spent seven years there. And um, decided that big companies weren't um, where I was best suited. So I went to work in a family business. My father had a small sheet metal fabrication shop. And I did that for a few years. And uh, the, the, yeah, the short story on that is, is it was one of those where the, it was a small business. Spent a lot of time trying to grow it and couldn't do it for um, after working on it for almost three years. And... That's really where my path goes from being this sort of manufacturing, purchasing, logistics guy to um, to publishing. I started a blog like when people didn't know what blogs were. So this is like 2002, 2003, 2004. And I was blogging about business and I was writing about lots of different things, in particular about uh, books that were being published. And that sort of led me to an introduction to a company also based in Wisconsin outside or actually in Milwaukee called 800 CEO Read. And that sort of started me on my path towards um, spending the last 15 plus years now working in book publishing. Um, I saw from your LinkedIn profile uh, that there's a reference to your time in at GE with uh, Six Sigma. Mm -hmm. um, so I know this is a little bit random, but I've always wanted, like I've read about it a little bit, and I'm sure everyone's <laughs> heard about it. But 
what what the heck is Six Sigma? <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> it's um, it's really a problem solving methodology that's heavily anchored in statistics, and uh, there's a it's a you know four step process. At least that's how it was taught to me, and it's uh, measure, analyze, improve, and control. And uh, I spent a couple of years doing nothing but that, and then training lots of people on how to do it, and. Uh, I think it's, you know, it, it was at GE, it was adopted really well. I mean, what they did is they pulled the the best people out of some of the most important positions. And uh, this is when Jack Welch was still there. And he um, made it very important. Um, everybody in the entire company was trained on it. And uh, the kinds of improvements that the company saw over those times in manufacturing and uh, deliveries and all sorts of different parts of the business were um, pretty amazing. So it's a problem-solving methodology that uses, um, you know, everybody goes, oh, statistics. Well, statistics can actually be super helpful and they can be interesting. And uh, um, I I think it's something that I think has come to influence me even all these years later in terms of a lot of the stuff that I do now. Um, I think that a lot of people who are interested in books and writing probably share the uh, sentiment you expressed about fitting in at big companies. Mm. Um, it's a very independent thing to be drawn to in its own way. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it was about big company life that you didn't take to. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The, um, I didn't figure this out until later. It, it was probably five, six years after I left, but I kept finding myself at GE attracted towards and moving towards groups that were very small. So um, one of my first big jobs after I took a full-time position there was as almost a general contractor for a big construction project at one of the plants that I worked at. So that was really great. Individual project manager, worked with lots of different people, but nobody that I was really responsible for moved to a big IT transformation project. Again, there were five people on the core team that were making it all happen, really enjoyed that. Um, moved to back to Wisconsin and uh, found myself working again on like this little 10-person team. There were like two or three people sort of on the operation support side, and then there were, I think, 11 maybe who were building the product. Um as I had an opportunity to go to the next thing, I found, uh, not exaggerating, a five-person team that I could go join. And in the course of that last position that I had there, the team grew from five to, I think it was 80 in 18 months. Uh, we saw a huge increase in the um, acceptance of this particular medical device that we were making. And I had to get out of there. I thought, oh, my God, I can't. Like, you know, it was fun. It was interesting. I loved that, the experience of that growth. But um, even since then, even in the, the, the positions and the sort of projects that I've gotten myself involved in, it's been it's been small teams. And I think um, for me there, I was spending more time at GE telling people about what I was doing versus actually doing stuff. That's really what it, I think at the core of um, why it really started to drag me down was um, – I, I think I'm entrepreneurial by nature. I'm, I, I love trying new things. I love experimentation. Um, I'm not someone who's great at maintaining, um, uh, but I'm very good at trying new things, innovating, seeing what will work, 
Uh, and so I think that's hard in large organizations. Whereas um, when I found spots within large organizations that were smaller, um, it worked better for me. Thanks for that really great uh, explanation. That was really, really clear. Um, and I think, yeah, something that a lot of people will identify with. Um, uh, and so uh, one of the, you spoke about projects um, and I believe one of the projects you've worked on in, in, the, in your publishing career is, was a book that sold over 500,000 copies. Mm. Is that correct? I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. That's, that's quite a success and quite, quite a feat. Yeah. So, uh, in, uh, in 2012, I had an author who approached me, someone who lived here in Portland, uh, was somewhat familiar with what I did and my experience around, um, business books. That's actually, sort of where I spend most of my time is in nonfiction. And he, he brought a half written manuscript. He said, could you read this? I've written a novel for it people. And I thought that's kind of interesting. Um, I've never heard of that before. I've certainly heard of business fables and business novels and people using fiction to teach. Um, but he was very particular. He wanted to try to tell a story around how he could, teach these new concepts to technology people. Um, and I read the story and, you know, fiction's tricky. You know, a lot of times either you like it or you don't. And he, in the first, at least first half of the manuscript, I thought he had a lot of really good stuff going on, a lot of good tension, good characters. And I decided to start working with him. And so we spent about another year getting the book put together. And we launched it in January of 2013 as um, a book called The Phoenix Project, um, the author's name is Gene Kim. He was the uh, co-founder of a company in Portland called Tripwire, which is very well known in the technology space as an enterprise security company. And he had left it and he wanted to do something else. And so that was kind of the, the gist of doing the book. And it really was, uh, we started very small. It was only available on Amazon to start with through their Kindle platform or as a print book that we shipped to them. Uh, and it really is like one of those little engine that could kind of stories. Um, it came out the first month and I think we sold 2000 copies, which is, you know, pretty good for any book, but it sold 2000 copies every month for the next eight months. And we thought, you know, there's really something to this book if it can kind of keep that consistency to it. So then we started looking for distribution and signed with a distributor, um, about a year into the process, signing with the distributor, increased sales 40%. Um, a year later, we put it out in paperback, decreased the price probably 30%, you know, kind of that normal, oh, you know, I think we, when we sold the book originally, it was a $30 book, got it down to $21, increased sales 40% again. And uh, over the course of those four years, we sold um, 400,000 copies. Um, it just celebrated its fifth anniversary in January, and it's still selling. It's selling as well, if not better, um, than I think this year will probably be its best-selling year in its sixth year, which is pretty amazing. That's really amazing. Did you do any um, any special marketing around it, or was it just something that – I mean, it seems from your description that it just kind of found a life of its own. Yeah, I mean, we did um, we did some things up front where we were smart about um, we did some testing of titles and subtitles using Google AdWords. So we did some experimentation on the front side. Um, once the book come, came out, we could see that there, there were sales that were happening 
And one of the things that we did was we just didn't know how much demand there was. It was a $30 book, um, so it wasn't cheap. But I don't think we felt we knew quite yet what the demand for the book was yet. So um, about three months in, we did um, we used Amazon's sort of Kindle program to make the book available free for I think it was three days. It was like right around April Fool's Day, and we you know pushed pretty hard that the book was available. And we gave away I think it was twenty two thousand copies of the book in three days, and. What we could see was um, there was clearly pent up demand for this book um, and that there was more that we should be doing. So one of the things that caused us to do after finding out there was that much demand for it at that free price point was we started giving away half of the book for free. Um, So you could download. All you had to do was give us your email address and we would give you an excerpt, but we would give you a 180 page excerpt of the book. Um, And, you know. Like very manipulative publishers, we, you know, the, the spot that it ended is the spot where the main character quits the job, walks out, and you don't know what's going to happen in the second half of the book. Um, so we found that making that excerpt available was the next point for us that having a very large sampling, um, fiction's tough, right? You know, you can't usually from a description from a hundred words, know am I going to like it or even from 10 words or 20 words? So we found by giving away an excerpt, that was really the next most important thing we did. Um, I would say after that, you know, Gene was speaking quite heavily, um, we started a conference not that long after that. That was another big platform booster for us. Um, I think, uh, you know, those kinds of books don't come along very often. The kind of book that sells 400,000 copies um, that, you know, this year probably sells 500,000 copies by, by year end. Uh, they don't come along very long. And I think in our case, even though we were very smart with all the things I've described, um, we caught the very early end of a trend of a, of a new philosophy about how enterprise technology in this particular case needed to be practiced. And this book did the best job of describing how to do that. I also think the other thing it did was um, probably like any kind of good fiction it was something people could really identify with. The first hundred pages of the book is about, you know, sort of the meltdown of an IT system inside a large organization. And it, you know, he's written it in a way that like, I think anybody would read and go, Oh my God, like this is horrible. Uh, you know, you get to the end of the, that section and they can't make payroll. Like it isn't that they don't have money. It's like they literally can't print the checks because the entire IT system is fried. And, you know, this becomes a, you know, something you have to report to the SEC. It it creates all of these very, you know, not only huge technical problems, but business problems for the people in the book. Um, And I think there's a lot of people who read the first part of that section, people who work in IT, um, who identify with how difficult it is working in that particular industry. Um, You know, research shows that People who work in operations in particular in IT have um, stress levels and suicide rates similar to first responders. Um, So firefighters, lance corporals in the military. um, And I think this this book helped people um, personify and I think identify with the kinds of troubles that someone finally had sort of told their story um, in a way that um, they could identify with. That's really interesting you bring that up. The um, 
there's something interesting about working in, I guess, let's say tech where like the scale and speed with which things can go wrong yeah. is, is something kind of unique, you know, like it's, and, and often, um, you know, it can, it can feel to people like, Oh, it was just a small mistake, but now, now the entire, you know, production line is down and there's a bunch of suits kind of tapping their watches, counting the money disappearing as the minutes go by. Uh, and, and it really is, uh, being in those kinds of situations is like, it's an emergency. Yeah. It really is an emergency and it feels like an emergency and lives in a way can be, can even be on the line in, in, in this, these worlds. It's gotten to be right. I mean, the dependency that we have on technology now is incredibly important. Um, the systems that we've built are largely monolithic, you know, which means if one little piece of that system goes down, that, uh, the whole system goes down. Um, it isn't a lot of little pieces that are sort of can operate independently, which is what is being advocated for more and more today. But um, I think that um, there have just been so many people that have that when I worked with Gene and his organization, IT Revolution, there were so many people that came to us talking about just the difficulty of working in that particular industry. And, you know, it's a utility like we expect the water to run and we expect electricity to run and we expect our email to always be on now. Like I should always be able to connect and I should be able to have all the functionality that I need. And I think it's difficult for people who work in that industry. Yeah. It's interesting. There's, there's something as well about, I mean, the, the ability to communicate so quickly with so many people as well. I mean, there's social media, but there's also like, you know, just yesterday, uh, the day before um, recording this on May 25th um, was GDPR day. Um, and so we had to deal with that and we had to send out like 1.2 million emails. Right. Um, and, you know, it's like we're a small team, but, you know, because of the way technology works, you can do that. But when you when you press the button on something like that, that's going to touch over a million people's lives. Um, you know, it's, uh, you're, you stress about it going wrong. Um, you stress about the response. Um, you learn very quickly that you can't please all of the people all of the time and that the very same message that will garner praise from some will garner condemnation. From others. Yes. Um, and I imagine, you know, in the, in the, in the olden days, it certainly would have been the case that if you were running a utility and things went down, the phone banks would go off. But nowadays, you know, Twitter can explode and then Twitter can be like Twitter tw tweets are on the news right? and like not necessarily from presidents. Like they'll, they'll you know, users so-and-so said this negative thing. And then all of a sudden you've got to deal with that. And yeah, it, uh, it's the scale and speed and the sort of universal transparency with which things are communicated nowadays make those tech jobs just incredibly sensitive yeah it's, it's that double-edged sword isn't it len that we have with small teams now the ability to to um, have in tremendous scale like when you look at the size of the instagram team where what did they have when they were bought by um, facebook 16 people 18 people or something like that maybe 30 um 
uh, Pokemon Go was, you know, a team of 30 that, you know, scaled. It was the fastest app to scale, scale to a billion people. Um, these are small teams. When you think about the ability for us to influence lots of people. Now, you then spoke to the other side, which is, gosh, what level of responsibility does very small teams of people now um, hold for very, very, very large groups of people? I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I wanted to ask you about astronaut projects, uh, mm. your company. Um, I know you, uh, recently re- returned to it, uh, as a full-time role and you weren't, you weren't there full-time for a while. Um, can you just talk about that company? What, what led to its creation? What, what does it, what do you do? Yeah. So, um, it's a publishing studio based out of Portland, Oregon. And what it grew out of was I had a set of people uh, to back up one step. I, I spent seven years with a company in Wisconsin called 800 CEO read. Um, they're relatively, if you know, business books, you would know them. If you didn't, you probably wouldn't be very familiar with them, but they're a company that serves a very particular niche in a very particular way. And what they do is they sell, um, not one book at a time, but they sell boxes of books at a time and they ship books, um, all over the country, even all over the world. And it turns out that it's a very different problem when one goes into a bookstore looking for a single copy of the 100 best business books of all time versus when the author, say, is speaking to a corporate client and they need 150 copies of the book um, there on a given day, at a given time, at a given location. Um, that's a very different problem. And Sia Reed's gotten very good at solving that particular problem. And it turns out there's a lot of people that have that particular problem. And uh, we found ourselves working with a lot of authors and a lot of publishers. So I built a pretty big network of people that I worked with there. And uh, when I moved out to Portland, uh, I started having some of my contacts that I knew from there who showed up saying, you know, I want to publish a book. Uh, I'm not sure commercial publishing is the right thing for me. Maybe they had an experience that they didn't like. Maybe they didn't like the lack of control. Maybe they felt like they should make more money. There's all sorts of reasons why authors sometimes um, don't end up thrilled in the commercial space of the experience that they've had. Um, So they they were kind of shying away from that. Um, And then on the other end, what we had was um, they felt like just publishing it on Kindle or through CreateSpace or through some self-published platform wasn't going to be enough for the kind of, for both the size of their platform and the work that they wanted to produce. So they said, could you create something in between? Like, could you give me more support than what I could expect from kind of essentially either end? So what I did is I essentially created a, you know, what is now come to be known as a hybrid publisher, um, where um, I work on a handful of books a year, um, one, two, three books a year, not very many at all. Um, So I'm very particular about the clients that I work with. And what I'm trying to do is, you know, if a commercial publisher is, has a like a portfolio strategy where they'll sign 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 books to a, to an imprint there. I'm more like a stock picker where I'll, I try to pick a book or just a couple of books that I'll work on in a given year and put all of my effort into those, um, into those books. So what I, I do is I work very closely alongside those authors to develop the book. Um, 
both you know editorially and then at the same time in parallel you know what's the right marketing and launch plan to make that work for the book um so I look much like on the front side of that process, I probably look like a developmental editor that you might hire to work on the book. And then on the back side of the process, what the what my clients do is they sign a distribution agreement with me where I've set up a set of relationships with all the sorts of people that you want to commercialize your book. So we have a, a commercial book distributor that can um, – make your book available in all the other places that you'd expect it. Uh, we have a foreign rights person who can sell translations um, and other ancillary rights. Um, I have a relationship with an audiobook distributor. So all the places and, you know, a few online uh, subscription uh, services where you can make your book available where they make sense. So, and, and what's interesting about the way I structure my process in the distribution side is what I say is I say, listen, you're the author. You're the person who's going to be doing most of the heavy lifting. I'm making this happen. So what I do is I flip my royalty structure. So the I take what the author normally gets, which is that kind of 10, 15 percent. Um, and I give them what the publisher would normally make from a royalty standpoint on the book. So it recognizes kind of. I think, you know, what I think is the reality of publishing. Um, but um, I don't know, there's, there's kind of a, a rough idea of, of how astronaut projects works. Yeah, that's a really great description. I th it reminds me of, um, uh, I think, a bio of yours that I found online, maybe on, on Amazon, uh, in your profile, where you describe your work as being maybe more akin to that of like a music producer mm. um, than, uh, than one might conventionally think about someone who's, you know, in the book publishing world well it's interesting that um in book publishing the only person who's really a part of the process is really the literary agent and their job is really to sell a book to a publisher and so they act as kind of this intermediary where they want an author to bring them a proposal that's you know close to being done and then they have in their mind well who which editors do they have to work with um, do they that they work with that might be interested in this particular project when you go to the music side of things there's a whole bunch of other players involved in that industry so um, you may have there's an agent and they act much like a literary agent where they're handling bookings, they might handle commercial deals, sponsorships, things like that. But there's these other two roles. There's a producer, which is usually very closely related to the pr actual production and creation of the music. Um, and then there's also a manager who's usually works with a band or a couple of bands um, and is kind of watching over all the business decisions that that artist is making. And so I just think it's super interesting that um, – that role or those couple of roles we don't tend to see in publishing quite as much. And I've been thinking about that more and more that in a lot of the cases, what I'm acting as is certainly a producer, an agent to a certain extent. But I think um, depending on where that author is in their evolution, sometimes a manager as well. Like what are the ways – and that's how I worked with Gene. We, we grew a business from zero to seven people, a publishing operation, an events organization, a um, his speaking business. And then actually he had a research and assessment operation that he had co-founded with another company. And so it's interesting to me that when you find the right person, the right project, the right idea, there's a lot of possibilities about how that um, – idea can be turned into a variety of businesses. Um, 
One thing I always try to keep in mind is that for people who are um, on the outside of the business, it can seem like mm -hmm. a real mystery about how to get your foot in the door. So you mentioned that you work very selectively with people. Um, how do people get their foot in your door? That's a great question. Um, the way they get their foot in my door is that um, I think there's three problems that you have to solve when you are doing a book. Uh, the first problem that you have to solve is have you are you working on a problem that people care about? And I think there's two ways that you sort of evaluate that. One is, you know, I've been around this for a very long time and there's that kind of the intuitive sense that you have of is this going to work? Does it sound right? I mean, I, I oftentimes I'll say to people, does this sound like a good idea? And I think I think people know what a good idea – I think everybody knows what a good idea sounds like. It's the one you go, hmm, yeah, gosh, that would be an interesting book if I read that. Now, it, it gets harder to go to dissect what would make it better, what, why didn't that idea work, what could make the idea work better. But I think on the outset, we know what a good idea and a bad idea sounds like. I think most authors – who show up on my doorstep have already proven it's a good idea. And what I mean by that is that they've already come up with other methods to show that people are interested in the idea. So they have a consulting business. They have a speaking business. Um, they've established some company that's delivering value in some way to some set of people. Um, or they're a columnist or they're whatever the case might be. You know, to show up and, and um, say, hey, I want to write a book. And I say, well, who knows you for wanting to write on this subject? And if your answer is no one, that that's, that's going to be a hard conversation for the two of us to probably have. Um, so you got to prove value. And I think there's a bunch of ways to do that. I think the second one is you got to prove you can get to the customers. you got to prove that you have a route to, uh, and people always hate this about publishing. Uh, they, but when, you know, and the, the, the very, the word platform, what's your platform? How do you get to people? But, um, it's super important. You've got to solve that problem. And then the third problem is you have to have a business model that's going to work. Like there has to be the dollars and cents of um, not only the book in terms of will the book make sense, but I think in most cases, in particular with the people that I work with, they're experts in their fields. The book in some way has to support um, the broader work that they're doing and all those other things that I was talking about, it needs to support it and it probably needs to um, enhance it. And if you can't solve those three problems or you can't see your route to that, um, there's going to be trouble. Yeah. That, that reminds me, um, one thing you've written is uh, that, that kind of surprised me was it's not the publisher's job to market your book. It was some, mm. something along those lines. And it, it, sur it surprised me. And it was partly because it reminded me of a very specific um, encounter I had at uh, Book Expo America, the big um, annual book fest uh, in, uh, on the East Coast every year. Um, and this was in 2013. And there was one session on self-publishing. Um, and a uh, guy Kawasaki was, was talking there. <laughs> um, and he said, the last time I ever spoke to a publisher about, you know, working with them, um, they asked me, you know, how I was going to use my platform to help sell my book. And I said, well, why, why would I, why would I work with you at all? If I'm going to be using my platform in the end, uh, anyway, and you're basically piggybacking off all the work that I have done and will do to maintain and grow that platform.
going forward? What's what? What would your if you and if you had been on that panel with him, uh, how would you have responded to to that pretty you know tendentious way of putting things? Sure, I I, I think that that commentary exposes two problems. Um, I think the first problem is um, I really do like the metaphor of venture capital and entrepreneurs for publishers and authors. So if we think of a publisher for a second as a venture capitalist, uh, what we may say to ourselves is, well, what do they, what do both of those people have that's interesting? And generally what they have is they have a point of view as to what sorts of things they want to invest in. Um, they have a privileged relationships with people and what they have is they have, um, they have a bag of money that they're going to invest in projects. When you go to the other side and you go to the entrepreneurs or the founders or like in the publishing's case, the authors, you know, their job is to bring a great idea. Their job is to bring the customers um, and their job is to do the work to make the book successful. And I think if I think that metaphor holds up pretty well. Um, I remember my publisher when we did the hundred best said to me, I said, just tell me one thing I, I know about publishing, but tell me like if, if I was a new author, what's the one thing you'd want me to know going into this? And he said, I can't get your mom to buy the book. I can't get your ex boss. I can't get your next door neighbor. Like I can't do that as the publisher. You can like the power to you for you to do that is, you know, our order of magnitude stronger than what I can do. And I really took that to heart. I think there's so much truth in that. And so I think Guy or whoever author, whatever author wants to hold that opinion could say, well, I want the, the publisher to do more for me. But the reality is it's the founder or it's the author who's going to do a lot of the work. Now, having said that, here's the trick. The trick is that when if I look to that publisher venture capitalist side of the equation and I think to myself, um, bag of money, point of view, privileged set of relationships, if any of those start to weaken, then the value relationship isn't going to work very well between the author and the publisher. And I think that's what we're starting to see. I think one of the tricky parts is the valued relationships that a publisher may or may not have um, are becoming freight or less valuable. Is it valuable for me to have privileged relationships with a set of retail channels when 50% of books are sold through Amazon um, versus I could just sell it, um, self-publish it on Amazon? There's certain cases where you should. There's certain cases where you clearly should self-publish books yourself. Um, I can also point to, again, completely on the other side, I can point to a whole set of books that would not have been successful without the commercial support of a publisher. You could look at um, um, people always get uncomfortable when I bring up Fifty Shades of Grey, but the backstory of it is fascinating. It's fan fiction, right? Uh, based on Twilight, self-published in Australia. Um, they, uh, it's fan fiction to start with. Then they turn it into a book. It gets some traction. Um, if it stops there, it never sells 30 million copies or 40 million copies. It never gets there unless Random House picks it up. So I think the conversation about 
publishers and authors and who should do what probably needs to be a little bit more nuanced about is that publisher, are you the right author for a publisher and can the publisher really support you in the way that you want to? There's a lot of authors where in advance from a publisher is a big deal. The ability to be able to take that money and reinvest it back into the production of a great book and promoting it the right way, that alone can be a very important um, distinction for authors. So I don't want to give you an it depends, Len, but I think there's a little bit more to that um, to that conversation, probably. Um, it's really interesting. One of the um, implications, your book is called, you know, uh, Every Book is a Startup. Um, and one of the implications there that might be sort of easy for people like us in the world we move into sort of gloss over is the, that a book is, is like a business. Um, and one thing I just find so fascinating about it's it's nobody would be surprised to discover that their corner store was a business. Nobody would be surprised to discover that, you know, uh, their grocery store that they go to is a business. But a lot of people seem to be surprised when they hear, when they discover that, like, you've got to come up with a business plan. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to do some market research. You don't, well, you don't have to, obviously, right. You can, you can just write and, and do, do what you will, but Generally, in order to be successful, a book does need to be approached as being like a startup, like a business. Why? I guess I just wanted to ask you for your sort of view from 30,000 feet. Why is it something about books in particular that in the popular imagination, they're kind of divorced from an understanding of the material reality that's so obviously there? I think it's because I think there's a lot of reasons. Um I think one of the reasons is that we're exposed to books um, so early and for such a long period of our lives where the economics don't really interact with us. You know, if you think about, uh, you know, in the Western world, we're exposed to books from a very early age. Um, many of them either bought by our parents or gifts from loved ones. We then go into school and we have libraries and we have classrooms and we have textbooks. Um, like we don't tend to run into the reality of, of book publishing till we get to university and we've got to start buying $200 textbooks for our classes. And then we find out about the used market and we've and like, then, then we're learning all sorts of things about how books works, but in, you know, right in a very particular way. So I think that's one reason. Um, you know, I think a second reason is that, um, there's something very romantic about writing a book. Um, it is um, something that we all dream of doing for some reason or another. And I think it's because we're so like, we don't say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to I want to make a movie like that's not we, we don't tend to as a, a general populace run around saying and maybe that's starting to change. YouTube is really starting to change that um, that piece a bit. But I don't think we walk around uh, with an idea. A lot of people in our head saying, oh, my gosh, I've got to make a movie. But there's a lot of people who walk around saying, Gosh, I would really love to write a book because I, th I they think it's possible. Um, they've written a lot in their lives. Um, and so then I think what happens is that um, I think it's so divorced from the art of it and our ego associated with wanting to do the book is so divorced from the market 
economics reality of it, that when you start telling people, gosh, how hard is it to sell books and how many books does an average, you know, um, does a, a book sell and, you know, how w- wide ranging that is. Um, I think it's just a, a, I think it's all those things kind of bundled up together in a, a very interesting mixture. Um, this is the second version of your book. And the first one, I believe, was published in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I'm just surprised to say it myself, but that was eight years ago, um, <laughs> 2010. Um, uh, how has your, your thinking about uh, this matter changed in that time about books being started? Or, or perhaps how has the, the environment changed, would you say, in that time for um, treating a book like a startup? Um, I, I believe it more strongly than ever. Um, and I know that's has to do with, um, my experience with Gene's book and, and the books, you know, we, in my time that I worked with Gene, we published, um, another book of his and five books by four other authors. So, you know, we were actually building a publishing, a nice publishing program there. And I think the reason I felt like I needed to go back and, updated is because, um, one, no one else was pushing on the idea. I thought that, and it, you know, as I say in the book, I think the first edition, the first version of every book is a startup. I think it sold 600 or 700 copies. Um, it was only ever available at on O'Reilly's website. That's who I originally published the book with. And so I thought that there was, um, a lot more that's happened uh, when it published. This was right after um, Eric Reese's book came out, The Lean Startup. I was heavy, heavily influenced by Eric's work. And I don't think enough has been said quite yet. And I think I have a theory, and it may be wrong, but I have a theory still that if we spent more time thinking about is this book solving a problem? Do we have a clear path to the customers that are going to buy it? And are the dollars and cents of this book going to work that if we got much clearer and we experimented with those earlier on in the process, um, rather than write the whole book, here we go, good luck, everything's going to work out great. If we did more experimenting with those ideas earlier in the process, I think we would have more successful books. I think we would kill off more books earlier in the process. Um, And I think that's important. I think it's important that, you know, uh, if I'm an author, I'm a publisher, I'm a publicist, like anybody who's in this um, chain, I think, you know, most importantly, readers, like, I think we should have better books. Um, And I think some things that get published Um, if they were vetted, not from the standpoint of an agent or editor, but vetted better from a marketplace standpoint, when it's important, like there's some books that should be published independent of economics and authors are going to do that. And publishers are going to do that. I think to a certain extent, I think they serve that role. That's not the world I live in. I live in a world that's much more driven by, I want books that are, uh, I tend to publish books and work with people where the book is going to help the reader um, and it's going to help the author. And so I think that, um, I don't know, I just, I think there's more to be said. And you said, well, what more needs to be said? I I think it's that we need to experiment more. I think um, 
for some reason, uh, it's almost like the same blind spot that you were talking about a minute ago, Lynn, of like, why do people think that there isn't any economics? Why, why is there no business around doing books? Um, I think in the same way, people almost don't see the risk that the, of what they're involved in. I mean, most people are going to spend a year, maybe more writing a book. That's a lot of time. And to not be certain whether or not that time was worth it, um, that there's an audience waiting for it, in particular, if it's very important for you for that book to get out into the marketplace and to uh, what I care about is, are you going to change the conversation? Is this book going to change people in some way, in whatever way that you think you can have an impact? And if you're not doing some work in advance to know if you're headed in the right direction, um, I don't know. I think you're taking on a lot more risk than you need to. And um, for those listening who might not know, how, how do you experiment with a book early on in the process? What, what are some examples? I mean, you mentioned earlier, I think, AdWords and things like that. But, you know, I think a lot of people might not know what some of the avenues are for experimenting with. Yeah, like I, think that. That, I think that's a great that's a great question. Um, first, I think it depends on what problem that you're trying to solve. So if you're trying to, I think first you should figure out, is there interest in the idea, in the topic? Is there value in it? Um, and I think that means you're writing about it somewhere. You're talking about it somewhere. Um, and that could be using a place like Medium. That could be um, becoming a columnist at a journal. That could be publishing an academic article. Um there's so many routes to it, but I think it needs to be written. I think if you're going to write a book, this is really about um, writing and capturing those ideas uh, in some way. I think that's the the easiest thing to do. Um, but I think it evolves from there pretty fast. Um, it could be serializing the idea. It could be, can I put out a small version of this, see if there's interest in it, and then decide whether or not. We want to continue with it. Um, that's something that I actually did with the first version of Every Book is a Startup. We, I released one edition, and then we released three more over the course of a year. Um, and then we stopped it. We actually were going to put more into it, and we actually stopped it right there because it, we it wasn't getting the traction necessary. So I think first figure out if there's uh, – and I take pre-orders. That's a really kind of novel idea. Suggest the book that you want to write and see are there people – who will get on that journey with you as you go write it. Um, I would say if you don't have anyone early in that journey to come along with you, that it'll be, it's not going to be any easier a year from now when you're done with the book to go find those people. Um, I think that uh, you can do a lot of experimenting around um, finding the right route to customers. Like how do I know that once I publish the book that there's a good way to market or promote in the direction where there might be customers? Uh, there's a great book called Traction, which I recommend almost at every chance I get. Um, these these guys are both startup founders, and they um, they recommend. I think they list 19 different techniques that you can use to get to customers, and they're so awesome about it because what they say is, listen, we've studied. I think it's 50 different startups or 60 different startups, and every one of them used a different technique to get where they needed to. And as they grew, they needed to change to another technique. Um, they couldn't use the same thing to get from zero to 100 million. So it just shows how important, you know, experimentation is. It shows you how important where your customers are now may not be where your customers are as the as the um, project grows. So um, 
there's a couple of ideas. Um, speaking of experimentation, you had a recent post where you talked about why you love Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I like the idea of loving Amazon. Um, not, not every, in, when you sort of read the publishing industry news, there's, you know, quite the vocal constituency that, that doesn't like Amazon. Um, there's also a very vocal constituency that does, and that's the one that's reaching tens of thousands or millions of readers and actually making money, uh, particularly in self-publishing in a way that wasn't possible in the past. Um, mm-hmm. So what is it about Amazon that you, that, that you like? So I, the first line of that post was, I love anima- Amazon because they're always experimenting. So that's probably the most important thing. And I went on to show two experiments that they're running right now. Um, And I think they're running experiments all the time, right? I mean, I think the data is very clear on that. Some are very visible as were these particular cases. They were trying some things around how they were pricing products. Um, But I think they're running all sorts of other experiments in page layout and what information works better than other information. Um, So I think that's what I like most about them. I mean, the other thing I like about them, and I really, I honestly do not believe that this is, um, this is just PR or lip service, is I think they care about their customers. Um, I really do. I think that they're trying to create experiences that um, it's, there's no place easier to buy stuff than on Amazon. Really. Like their one button, when they created one button um, purchasing, uh, there are some days where you know, you go back to another site, you've got to enter all your information to, to make a simple purchase. You think to yourself, Oh my God, like, um, now Bezos is really clear and he says this a bunch of different ways, right? Jeff Bezos, the CEO, he'll say, we think, I think that, you know, he, one of his quotes is that there's only two kinds of companies. There's companies that raise prices and there's companies that lower prices and we're the latter. Now, we can get into all sorts of discussions next about the morality of our lower price is always best. And is it good for employees and is it good for suppliers? And what is the sec, you know, what does the secondary marketplace on Amazon do? And like you get into, a, again, as equally nuanced as Guy Kawasaki talking about publishers um, and what value there is. Um, but there's a lot that, um, I respect about how Amazon um, does business and in that particular sense that they work in small teams, they experiment a lot. They try to move closer to what the solution is that's going to work best for um, their customers. And I think that all of us could learn from that. I think in particular, a lot of us in the publishing industry could learn from that. Uh, We don't experiment enough. Uh, uh, I saw a, a, a retirement posting today by someone who was leaving um, the publishing industry after 30 years. And they said that um, the publishing industry is sometimes um, stubborn and prickly. And they kind of held that up as a, as kind of a, uh, a positive. And I thought Hmm. that's tricky. That's a tricky sentiment for me. Um, it's the kind of sentiment that I think gets industries um, disrupted and taken over by uh, other spots. And I think, you know, like it or not, I think that's what's happened when you look at Amazon in particular, what it's done in so many different ways um, to book publishing. 
And um, why do you think the book publishing industry is prickly? I'm not thinking I think it is. This is what this person said. Um, I think that the tricky part about um, the book publishing industry is that um, they're highly concentrated in a couple of places. Um, I mean, geographically, which means also sort of psychologically. Um, it's interesting to travel to New York and have conversations and they're always wonderful conversations, but I'm normally having the same conversation with this, with each person that I'm there with. They're all thinking about the same things at the same time. And sometimes that's interesting. And sometimes I think, wow, like why aren't there other conversations going on about what's important in publishing right now? And so I just think it gets a little bit tricky when, all of your deals come through a select set of people in the form of agents. Those are the deals that generally represent the kind of books that you're going to publish. Um, and that moving out of a particular route in terms of how you publish books is very difficult for most commercial publishers. Um, and so then when you get into, I'm publishing a lot of books, I don't have a ton of people. It's a low margin business. Uh, does everybody get the support they need to make the best books? Are our books supported the best they could be during launches? Um, that's when you get into all those. Again, I'm going to point back to what Guy's saying of do things go well as they need to? Is everybody supported the way they need to? I think that's where it can get a little bit stubborn and prickly because they bring a lot of experience to the books that they publish. But that I think we all know that experience can also be a little bit um, it can create some blinders. Um, so you uh, you mentioned that you published the first version of your book in in progress, um, and you're doing the same with this this version. Um, when would you suggest to someone who's thinking of getting into this? I'm going to experiment. I'm going to publish a book in progress. And how much should they have done before mm-hmm. they publish their first version of their book? And let, let's assume we're not talking about serial fiction or something like that. We're talking about a a nonfiction book. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, actually. I think there has to be enough, uh, you know, they, they do call it minimum viable product, right? So what is the minimum viable? And I think it's more than an introduction. I think it's more than a chapter. It's more than an article. I think you've got to probably lay out what you think the argument is for whatever you think you're going to do. Um, I think you need to do a good job of stating the problem of what's going on, which is usually what happens in those first couple of chapters. And then you have to give me a little bit of a view of what's next. So my bet is that probably looks like an introduction and it looks for like three or four chapters. Um, So 10,000 words, 15,000 words, you know, a long essay probably. Uh, I think less than that. And less than that, then if you're going to do less than that, then Come up with a title and a subtitle and write a hundred word description and, you know, go to launchrock.com and build a one page website to collect email addresses. Um, If you want the absolute minimum viable product, it's could I put a title, a subtitle, a short description of the book, and can I make that compelling enough that someone would give me their email address? And just because they want to stay in touch with what's going on. I think after that, 
the it's a step function to the next point. I think you have to have some substantial amount of material, and that's why you know um, as you were saying, I, I I'm publishing on LeanPub. I waited till I had five chapters um, that I could put out there, and um, because I think it needed to be enough that a reader could properly uh, judge. Otherwise. I think one of the things, one of the other pieces you miss is even in those early stages, I think you want one person telling another person about the book. You want them going, hey, um, I read this thing. It's not done yet, but it's super interesting. I think they're heading in the right direction. I think you should totally check it out. It's an interesting experiment to maybe follow along with. I think if it's less than that. It's like, I don't know. I got the first chapter and that's the last time they're going to talk about it unless like it was so compelling and you did such a good job moving from chapter to chapter. I think you're putting a lot of um, weight on yourself to um, uh, to do that. I think you're better off sell the idea and then sell something minimum, but maybe more uh, minimum than you think. One um, very kind of in the weeds industry related question that I like to ask people on the back matter podcast is um, so one often, if one pays attention to such things, one often sees in the news stories about declining ebook sales, particularly mm. in the U S do you believe that's true? Um, overall that ebook sales are declining. Um, I think the answer to that question is yes. Um, and, you know, I'm a big fan of the idea that I think we hire things for different reasons, for different jobs in our lives. And um, unless it continues to do a really good job of that, we tend to fire it and we hire something else. So I think there was a segment of people who when the Kindle arrived, I mean, you probably remember the first Kindle. It was rough. Like I, 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 the, the first version I saw, I remember saying, there's no way, there's no way this is going to get there. And I remember seeing the second one and going, Oh, this is because it's just going to keep getting better. Like I, I can't tell you how, I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm not a technologist, but the screen's going to get better. This is going to be right. So there's a set of people that move to it who travel a lot and don't want to carry books. Right. I know those sets of people. I talk to them all the time. Uh, they'll never, never go back to paper books again. Um, there's a set of people who read a lot of books in general. Um, and it's relatively well documented that, you know, things like a lot of genre fiction, romance, um, sci-fi, short story fiction. Um, these are folks who have adopted Kindle. I think, uh, you know, I think everybody's been in that case where I need the book right now. Like literally I need it right now because I'm giving a speech tomorrow. Um, I, I'm, I want to be able to search the book, right? So look at the jobs that I'm talking about. Um, I think if the primary job was I wanted to read a book, I think what happened was the general publishers decided that the people who adopted and then put their Kindles down and put them under their desk and they're still sitting there and they're gathering dust, they decided paper books where it was a better – that it did a better job for them. Um, and I don't I don't know if we all know the reasons for that. Um, do we like it better because it's furniture later to put on a bookshelf? 
Do I like it better because I can highlight it in a more tactile way? Do I like it because I can give it to somebody else? You know, I'm not sure what all of those reasons are, um, but I do believe that books in terms of being consumed digitally through the platforms that you know we're used to, like you know Kindle and Barnes and Noble and Kobo, um, I think it's flattened out, um, and I think it's because I think it's because of this idea of jobs. Now, if we're going to talk about reading digitally in general, like that's a very different discussion, right? We know people are reading digitally more than they ever have in our lives because we have devices in our pockets now and we can read that way. So I just think what's interesting is I, I it's very interesting to me that we're we're willing to read websites and texts and all sorts of different um, word-based communication, but um, we've still as a community largely decided that we still want to read books on paper. The last question I always ask in the front matter podcast when I'm interviewing lead pub authors, um, is a selfish one. And I'm going to, I'm looking forward to asking it of you because of, uh, your extensive experience and thought on these matters. But if there were one thing we could build for you, what would you ask for? At lean pub? Yeah. Um, layouts that look beautiful um the way um i think um i I love the platform because um i think that publishing takes too long that speed is actually an issue And, and what one of the things that stops speed is the handoffs between them so as i told you earlier in the podcast i spent you know, five years really close to enterprise technology and a lot of people thinking about how do I deliver code faster? You know, a manuscript is code. And I think one of the things that the platforms that your platform does really well is the ability for me to literally touch a button and have my files, um, available to me that fast. What 60 seconds maybe is what I wait for. Um, but I think what I am is I think I'm a pro consumer. I think I'm somebody who, you know, sits between a professional who's probably going to use InDesign to make their PDFs for their books that they're going to print. And, you know, somebody on the other side who's like, I, you know, I would read any PDF that showed up on my doorstep. I don't care. Or they think they don't care. Um, So there's only a couple options in your system right now for fonts, for how those fonts can be laid out. Um, so I'd love to see, uh, the ability to assign fonts to different tagging. So different headers. Um, so an H1 header could be a certain font an H2 header could be another font an H3 header. The body text could be another font, right? And I want to be able to also dictate the size of those fonts, right? So I want to pick it and I want to choose what the size of the font is. Um, and I want to be able to choose line spacing, that's super important. Um, fonts are, you know, it's so dependent on the font that you choose, those particular um, uh, decisions. So, and, and I'd go one step further. I'd love to be able to purchase a font inside of LeanPub and use it on my book. Um, and I think it's really great that you're using open source and that it's super easy to um, – 
uh, make those choices. But I think it'd be even cooler if I could even have a better, potentially better set of fonts available to me. I click a button. It's $50 more. I can use it on this book. Uh, and then I have those same choices. I have those same choices about can I make certain markdown, you know, not I'm going to assume people who are listening to the podcast know about your platform and the, you know, certain markdown tags could allow me to assign how those things are generated within, in particular in the PDF. It really matters in the PDF. It doesn't matter as much in the ebook files because a lot of times the platform, as you know, the platforms themselves solve a lot of those problems, but in the PDF, it's so important. I think that, you're about 70% of the way there right now. And I'd love to be able to press a button and have a print ready manuscript. But right now I feel like I still probably have to export it to InDesign and do some work with it, which is great that I can do that. But man, I, I feel like it's like this much, like I feel like you're so close that like, if you just did a couple of things that you could really, you could make manuscripts that, um, that sing that, that are, that are really gorgeous. Um, thanks very much for that general, uh, observation and for the very specific, um, uh, suggestions, which, I mean, that's like, that's how we get, we get better over time is, is precisely yeah. by those things. Um, coincidentally, we actually are working on line spacing right now. Yeah. Um, uh, that's a really interesting suggestion about being able to buy fonts and being able to set fonts for, you know, different headers or different blocks of text and things like that. Uh, um, I'm definitely going to communicate that to the team. Um, it's something we think about a lot. One of the, one of the funny things for us is because, you know, obviously we want things to look as good as they can and we want to be able to do as much of that work as we can for people who aren't interested in doing, you know, all of the work themselves. Um, uh, but there's always this little bit of a dance where we, we've got a, an internal joke, which is that formatting is procrastination before your book is finished which is, you know, like a bit tongue in cheek, not entirely true, depends on the personality, depends on the project that you're working on, depends on the audience, depends on how much your book costs and things like that. Um, but uh, we've, all, we've always got a bit of a, a balance, um, that we're, a balancing act that we're, that we're trying to do there where, you know, if we, give you, if we give you as many formatting options as you have in like Microsoft Word, for example, are we giving you a stealth fighter when all you need is a rowboat? You know, and, and like, yeah. if, if, like you can imagine, I, I bring up a stealth fighter. It's like, just imagine you, if you present someone with all these controls, A, they might get scared. B, they might use them when they shouldn't be. Right. You know, what does this button do? <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, and, and it's always a bit of a balancing act for us. I think in, I think in the case of your platform, it's only in the custom menu. I think keep the other stuff that it auto generates and maybe, maybe it gets better with some of this functionality that we're talking about, but that if I pick the business for template, it still does all the work for me. Um, I love the fact that you separate the tagging from the formatting. I think you, I think that like you just said this, don't let stuff be a procrastination. I think you're hundred percent right about that. Um, I've really, uh, I wasn't sure about it at first, but the more that I've used markdown and tagging, it does, it's faster and it, and it keeps me writing. And uh, I, I think philosophically it's square on. Um, I think the sorts of things I'm talking about 
I would argue it's for a larger set of people maybe than um, you realize, but I'd only do it in that custom menu where someone was going to go around um, messing with stuff. Um, but what's so important to me is I feel like, um, I mean, I call it single button publishing. That's what you guys do. The ability for me to press a button and my files are generated. Um, right now, it's borderline if I could, if I felt comfortable. I know a lot of people print books and they're probably 100% fine with it. Um, I just wanted a little bit better so I'd feel comfortable that I could. Um, I'm okay probably with my books, but when we're talking about the clients that I work with, that their standards probably being higher, I'd love to stay on your platform and use it on the production side, potentially use it on the end and use it on the e-commerce side. But on the production side, the ability for me to be more efficient with my customer um, in terms of how we write and to go through the editorial process and then even do production, um, I can take months out of my cycle um, if I can produce a truly, not a print ready PDF, which is what you guys do right now, but literally a, um, a print quality, like one that I would expect to find if I were to pick up any other book. And so, and that's my opinion. That's me poking at you a little bit and saying, I think, I think there's, um, I think there's more that could be done. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, uh, very good response. Um, we like, we like being poked. Uh, it's, how, it's how we get better. Uh, and, 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 uh, but as, and more importantly, how we become better for the people who are using, using lean pub to do things. And, you know, one of the interesting things as you, as you know, and I think you invoked earlier that, um, just as a final observation, you know, when people are working on books, it is books do have this role in our imagine, our cultural imagination. And there's a good reason for that. And for example, including something you've touched on a couple of times, this is the amount of time, um, that it takes to write a book, but also that like, it can be about your life. Uh, it can be, uh, about improving your life. Um, uh, and so it, it's really important to people when they're working on something that it's clear that people on the other side of it are aware of how important what they're doing is. And, you know, we're, we're, we're not, if we were, if we were prickly, um, we wouldn't be where we are. Um, and neither would any other authors. Um, so thank you very much, Todd, uh, for taking the time to do this interview. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, uh, best of luck with, um, your new full-time role or <laughs> new again, full-time role at Project, and, uh, and with your book. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thanks.